I have a case update for you all. And many of you have brought this to my attention, but now that I have time to sit down and create a short recording about this, here we go. As most of you know, or maybe you haven't gone back and listened to the archives of the last year, but one of the first cases that I covered, one of the first disappearances that I covered was that of Brittany Drexel, who was 17 years old and attended high school in upstate New York in a city, the city of Rochester, pretty near to where I'm from. And she had gone out of town down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina against her mother's Against her mother's will, she did it without permission, and not even without permission, but she was told not to go. And Brittany went anyway, and she ended up disappearing. And this was in 2009, okay? So it's been 13 years. Her remains were actually just found. And I want to take this as an opportunity for a few things here. Number one, I want to update you on the case. This was a registered sex offender, Raymond Moody, who has been charged with kidnapping and sexually assaulting and murdering Brittany Drexel. Her remains were found in South Carolina 13 years after she went missing while on spring break. She was a student at Gage Tyler High School in Rochester, New York, and disappeared in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on April 25, 2009. Now, she had disappeared while she was walking alone, and a lot of people had speculated that this had to do with a drug house and that sort of thing, and that she was taken to basically be sexually exploited and then eventually was killed. And a lot of people thought she had been left in an area where she would have been basically disposed of by the gators. However, this is not the case. And in fact, if you listen to my episode, I'm going to be completely transparent here and I will leave that episode up because what I say on there is that I see these men with her in their home. And what's interesting is I would like to say here that this is number one, why psychic mediums are not here to solve cases. We're here to let you know what it is that we see intuitively, number one. Number two, if you know as an intuitive too much going into a case as I did with this one, it's very possible to have your opinion swayed. So this was absolutely a lesson for me. And I'm also so glad that over the last couple of cases in the last couple of months, I've really kind of pushed toward being able to say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. So I'm either not going to do this case or as we did with um, Brian Schaefer or Bryceless Pizza, I'm able to tell you what I see, but there's still no real conclusion over it. And that's what I should have done with this case. So I would like to apologize because I did get carried away and I did read too much before doing enough intuitive um, feeling in before feeling into the case enough intuitively. So with that being said, I definitely moving forward will be doing more of just sharing pieces of what I see as I have been lately and less making sweeping, not necessarily accusations, but sweeping statements as to what I believe intuitively happened. As you will hear on this episode that is very short, there are some general ideas that I share with you, but overall, even though we believe we know who did it in this case, we'll not be saying who. With that being said, Brittany Drexel's killer, accused killer, 
is it being brought up on charges and it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. If you would like to read more about it or hear more about it, I will share an article from the New York Times that I kind of blitzed over a little bit of in the beginning and you can go ahead and check for yourself exactly what has been going on in that case. With that being said, we are now going to be talking about the disappearance of Amanda Sissy Goodman. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Catherine, psychic medium, self-worth coach, and true crime addict, and you're listening to Murder and Mediumship. Thank you for coming back to listen again, or if you just found us, I am so happy to have you here. This show seeks to highlight untold or undertold stories, and the story that I'm about to tell you today is possibly one of the most difficult stories that I've had the opportunity to research and to feel into energetically. This is the story of a young teenage girl who is taken from the world in the most confusing of ways, with little physical evidence left behind, plenty of rumors, and not so much as one arrest or named suspect over 30 years later. But first, a little bit of what's going on in my world for other intuitively aligned or curious people. Coming in June of 2022, intuitively aligned is a private membership community dedicated to creating safe space for intuitives stepping into their gifts. We'll have bi-weekly psychic and mediumship practice circles, weekly intuitive tips, and education on manifestation, as well as energetic hygiene. The launching of this group has been postponed from May to June as we are, I can finally say, moved into our new home, but unpacking, and over the month of May, I definitely fell a little bit behind. If you are part of our Patreon group, then we are absolutely having an interview this month, and one of you has actually selected Heath Ledger. So we're going to connect to Heath Ledger this month. The date is TBD at the moment, but I will have it out by the time this episode airs. With moving and and being on a crazy schedule in my personal life, it definitely got a little difficult to keep up with one episode per week. But moving through the rest of the month and into June, I absolutely plan on Mondays being release days once again. This is my favorite place to be behind this mic, sharing the stories that haven't been solved and could have been and should have been by now. And I want to say, too, that the YouTube channel is back up and running. This episode will not air on YouTube as I am in a much bigger office space now And the acoustics are not great. So I am working on getting soundproofing in here. And as I am hunched over my microphone, trying to defeat an echo with a couch pillow propped up behind my computer screen to absorb some sound, it just aesthetically is not so pleasing. Um, With that being said, I want to start out by saying that when I first looked at Amanda Sissy Goodman's photograph, I felt immediately that she was taken by someone who she knew very well and someone she should have looked up to and sought safety and refuge from. Think like a father figure, but I want to emphasize father figure here, not a father, not a stepfather. And there's something in her eyes that seems like a different kind of innocence as well. She was taken from the world the same year that I was born. In fact, just about a month after I was born. But even with that difference in time, I'd like to say that she gives me the feeling of someone who is more innocent than even the average teenager or preteen of her time. With that being said, 
I really didn't get into too much trouble as a teenager. I was pretty nerdy. I know, quite shocking. And what trouble I did get into was the kind where I should have known better that I would get caught because getting into trouble was just – or getting into trouble I was very good at. Getting caught I was good at. But misbehaving I was not. So anyway, I digress. Her energy seems to me like very quiet and sweet and maybe I would venture off to say even incredibly naive. Amanda was one of three children born to her mother, Barbara, and I believe the first two, Amanda and her brother, don't quote me on this, were born to Barbara and possibly a different father. And then one more child was later born to Barbara and Amanda's stepfather. They all lived in an apartment just over a mile from Amanda's school. Whether you do hours of sleuthing online or even a few minutes, it'll be easy to tell how little information is out there about Amanda's case. Amanda's family was fairly poor from what I can tell and likely didn't have the resources to hire their own private detective. And in 1989, the 24-hour news cycle wasn't really a thing yet. However, Goodman's case didn't acquire much attention outside of the local area, even in the newspapers. On May 13th, 1989, Amanda turned 13, and while not much can be found about her as a person, family friend Judy Shank has described Amanda as a quieter girl who was very sweet, very shy, and pretty well-behaved. Amanda and her family regularly attended a small church called the First Church of Brownwood, a small Pentecostal church pastored by James Lawrence Hampsey, a close friend of Amanda's family, who helped out often even going so far as to take Amanda on mission trips around the United States and, according to some sources, on occasional family vacations as well with his own family. On May 16, 1989, just three days after Amanda's 13th birthday, time crept past the normal time she would be home from school, and her mother, Barbara, began to become worried, and it sounds as if she were more concerned that Amanda was being defiant and needed to be grounded, more than concerned that something could have happened to Amanda. She usually left school around 3.30 p.m. and would walk the mile and some change home to be home by about 4 p.m. So by 4.15, Barbara hopped into her car to drive the route to and from school to check for her. When she didn't see her, she returned to their apartment by about 4.30. Again, you can see there wasn't really any concern for Amanda's safety, as Brownwood wasn't considered to be a dangerous place, and Barbara didn't think that something must have happened to her daughter, though she didn't know what could have been going on either. Not long after Barbara had returned home, law enforcement got a hold of her and asked her to go to the funeral home in order to identify Amanda's body. Now, like I said, there are so many questions that I have about this case, even now, as there's just not much information out there and available about her case. And Judy Shank, the friend of Amanda's family, has she's even filed for information under the Freedom of Information Act. But since this is considered an ongoing and open investigation, the Texas Rangers will not release any information to the public that hasn't already been released. On this very rainy day, while Amanda's mom had been driving her daughter's normal route home from school, Amanda was actually just about 10 miles south of Brownwood, laying just off the road in a ditch, visible to passersby with a single gunshot wound to the head. She had been placed gently and seemingly intentionally for someone to find soon after being laid to rest there. She had been seen walking in the direction of home from Brownwood Middle School not long after the end of the school day, 
and a few witnesses placed Amanda getting into a vehicle with someone, many saying that the vehicle wasn't one that they had recognized immediately. However, intuitively, I see a rusty old pickup truck. I believe red, but it may have red on it, like a red stripe, a white truck with a red stripe or a red truck with a white stripe. But I'm very called to red being on that truck, like that deeper maroonish red almost, and not the primary color of the vehicle. This was after 3.30, and by 4.15, she was found by a passerby in a vehicle just off of Indian Creek Road. Because of the extensive amount of rainfall, most physical evidence was washed away even in that short amount of time. What they do know is that because of the amount of blood at the scene, it's unlikely that she was shot and killed there, but likely in the vehicle or just as she was exiting the vehicle that she had been riding in. She was shot just under the left earlobe, and the bullet exited out the back right side of her head. She was then laid down in the ditch with her hands at her sides and her head propped up on a cup. It's possible that the cup wasn't intentional and that it just happened to be where the shooter laid her. However, her notebook and denim purse were laid nearby her body as well. Because of the care in which she was laid out, law enforcement believes that her killer knew her and cared for her. Even the type of weapon cannot be confirmed, as no bullet has been recovered and no weapon was ever found, though Texas Ranger Bobby Grubbs, as well as other law enforcement, believed that it was a handgun. Grubbs also had someone in mind that he suspected as her killer, but because of a lack of physical evidence, they were never actually able to arrest anyone for his murder. No persons of interest have been publicly named, and no suspects have ever been named either. Numerous people were interviewed from school, from her church, and of course her family. But even the person Grubbs most suspected passed his polygraph test. But this didn't deter him from believing that this person was responsible. It just further confirmed his suspicion on the level of manipulation and deceit that this man was capable of. And remember, polygraph test is not admissible in court. You can beat one. In a 2009 interview, Grubb said, I don't have the facts to back up my suspicion, and went on to say that it was because of the man's close connections to the family, as well as his, quote, past history, which after some sleuthing, found that this man was well-loved by the community and will say, high up in the First Church of Brownwood, had come to Brownwood from Illinois in 1984, following accusations of sexual assault and even being questioned in other murders though good luck finding names or information on that. And he left actually by early 1990, months after Amanda's murder. He went back to Illinois, and I won't say this person's title or name, but y'all can put it together for yourself. Something that I found very interesting about the verbiage used in Amanda's autopsy report was that there was, quote, no evidence of sexual assault from that day, which makes me, as well as many other armchair detectives, question if there was evidence of previous sexual assault found during the autopsy, like a history of assault. In my intuitive opinion, I believe that she had got into the vehicle of this man very willingly because it was raining so hard. I believe that she had been assaulted by him before, though maybe not fully, I'm not really sure how to say this, but maybe it wasn't like a full penetration, excuse me for being so vulgar, and that when he drove the opposite direction of her home, he intended on assaulting her on that back road where she had been found. 
I don't think that he had any fears over getting caught because of who he was. When she refused to go to willingly go along with what was happening, though, I think that because of his past history being fairly recent in the past, he panicked and shot her as she got out of the truck. For those of you who aren't from Texas or from a rural area, it's not unusual to just have a gun on you. It doesn't always mean that there's ill intent or intent to use that weapon. I mean, maybe there's intent to use it, but it's not its not an unusual thing in rural areas like that to just carry. It's just not. So I do see her wide-eyed turning to look at him and and him putting the gun very close to her head and pulling the trigger as she tried to get away. Once she fell over, he carried her to the ditch, and again, this is intuitively, laid her out carefully with her arms at her sides and head turned so that the gunshot couldn't have been seen right away, and then he sped off. Five years into the investigation, Brown County Sheriff Bill Donahue, excuse me, Bill Donahue, was quoted saying, there's not been any concrete evidence that we could come to a district attorney with and ask for a warrant. And we don't have enough evidence to file a case, period, on anybody at this point. From what I understand, her long sleeve shirt and denim skirt were preserved in evidence. According to Judy, this was typical of how the girls in her church dressed. And even for the church, Amanda's 13th birthday was fairly significant as it marked the time that she became a woman in the eyes of the church. The person affiliated with that church and various rumors was said to have assaulted two other girls who were just about that age, but never younger than 13. So is it merely coincidence that Amanda was murdered days after her 13th birthday, days after becoming a woman in the eyes of her church? And obviously this is speculation. I don't know that I have to point that out, but I'm going to. And another speculation was that Amanda had overheard something about drug activity at school and had told her mother. According to one news article, her mom had encouraged her to report what she had heard, but there's no evidence to say that she had put herself in any sort of danger in overhearing this or that she had ever reported anything of the sort. I don't believe that this has any truth to it whatsoever. I really, really don't feel at all that this had anything to do with her overhearing anything about drugs. The third and final widely speculated idea is that serial killer Ricky Nolan McGinn had killed Amanda. Now, in 1993, Ricky McGinn's wife, Janet, left him alone with her 12-year-old daughter as she traveled to Arlington. When Janet was gone, Ricky sexually assaulted her daughter, Stephanie Ray Flannery, repeatedly before killing her with the blunt side of a roofing axe. Stephanie ultimately died of multiple head injuries and a fractured skull, but wouldn't be found until three days later in a culvert on the side of the road. For those of you who don't know, because I had to look it up to be sure, so laugh away if you do, and here you go if you don't, a culvert is a channel that goes under the roadway to drain water away from the road, so very similar to a ditch. Anyway, she was found in a culvert three days later along a farm-to-market road, which is a Texas interstate system that connects rural areas to city centers. Note, she was found near McGinn's home. It was later discovered he was also responsible for the assaults and deaths of two other girls about the same age as his stepdaughter, though all three of these girls were murdered in much the same way and used the blunt side of an axe. I do not believe that McGinn is the guy who killed Amanda. 
I very much believe that this first person is the one who is responsible. And while I felt that he would get away with it, I do believe that he passed away more recently. If I'm wrong on that, though, I still do not believe that he will ever do time for any of the crimes he has committed against any young teen girls. And I do believe that there were many who were poor and otherwise unnoticed, much like Amanda Sissy Goodman. If you know anything at all, no matter how small it may seem, please do not hesitate to bring it to the attention of the Texas Rangers. And once again, thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship.